Good morning. My name's Kevin. I'm the pastor here at Grace Fellowship, and I'm so glad that you are here with us this morning to worship as a church. We have been making our way through uh, the Bible book, 1 Corinthians, and so if you have a Bible, turn with us there. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Before I read today's passage, just want to remind you, if you've been with us, kind of where we've been, what we're working through. This church in Corinth was a very troubled church. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of internal strife. And so what Paul does to uh, transform that, what Paul does to heal that, is he brings the gospel in and tries to show these people uh, how it is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection transforms what they're dealing with, what they're going through. And for the past few weeks, we've been on this subject of Christian liberty. So they ask Paul this question at the beginning of chapter 8. Paul begins to deal with it about eating food offered to idols, which maybe sounds like a strange question to us. We don't really have that problem. I don't know the last time you went to the grocery store and you had to ask the butcher, hey, was this pork chop, was this uh, sacrifice to Zeus? You probably didn't ask that question, okay? But that would have been a question that they asked in Corinth because Corinth was a very religious place. There were probably a dozen or more temples and shrines. And so uh, pagan religion, that is uh, religion other than the religion of the Bible, Christianity, was very common in Corinth. Uh, it would have been very hard to live life without some kind of reference to the idols of the day. And so Paul, so they asked Paul this question, uh, what can we eat? And Paul begins, and actually he spends two chapters, eight and nine, going underneath that question to this, to a deeper question of liberty. What are we free to do? What are we free not to do? What has God freed us up to do? And so I wanted to just spend a little bit of time and talk about what do we mean by that? What are we talking about when we talk about Christian liberty? Here's what we mean. That, uh, that here, like for instance at Grace Fellowship, we want to give people liberty of conscience. So what that means is that if God has not said it is wrong, then we are free. All right. That means that it is a, it is something that is indifferent. So in Paul's case, what it was is, um, the people in Corinth were saying, Hey, listen, idols are, are not really anything real, right? So we can eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, Well, yeah, you can. It's just meat. Right, it's what technically we would call something that is indifferent. Uh, God's word does not speak clearly one way or the other. It is a thing indifferent. It is not sinful in and of itself. So you are free. The big issue, the place where this usually gets applied for us here in the good old deep south is the question of alcohol. Right, God's word, uh, while it has a few things to say about getting drunk, never forbids drinking. Right? God's word does not forbid the drinking of alcohol. It is a thing indifferent. And so the Christian has the liberty to decide one way or the other, will I or will I not? And we would even go so far as to say that uh, there are some churches who enshrine it in their church constitution that to drink is forbidden. And my perspective would be to say that is wrong. You cannot bind the conscience of another believer where God's word does not speak, right? We, you have no right. If God has not told me that a thing is wrong, you cannot tell me that it is wrong. My conscience is free in that area, okay? So Paul says, yes, 
you have freedom. Then he says, but. In chapter 8, he says, do not use your liberty to trip someone else up. He says, yes, you have freedom, but you must take care how you use your freedom. Do not create a stumbling block for a brother or sister in the faith, particularly somebody who may be coming to the faith. You don't want to trip them up. If alcohol, so let's move it to our example. If drinking alcohol is an issue, let's say your family has seen is is rife with alcoholism, abuse that stems from alcoholism, and you just think, you know what, I never want to touch it. That's a big deal for me. Then the person who understands their liberty needs to... uh, condescend to this person, right? Uh, one we would say has the strong conscience. They understand that this is a, this is a thing indifferent. It's freedom here. But Paul says, be, be, be aware of the person with the weak conscience. If you've decided that that is an issue, right? If, and, and for some in this room, hey, listen, nope, a, a sip of alcohol will never touch my lips. That's not going to happen, right? Then Paul says, be aware of those people. Love trumps liberty. So yes, you have freedom. Use your freedom in love. All right. So that's the, that's the message of eight and nine. Paul now goes on to deal with this question of idolatry. They asked, can we eat food sacrificed to idols? Paul says, let's talk about that. All right. So this is what he does in chapter 10. I love what uh, Gordon Fee says about this. This is, then this really, this really captures the whole message of the book. The Corinthian church. Not a building, but the people are to be God's temple in Corinth, standing over against all of the pagan temples in that city. So let's apply that to us. Grace Fellowship Church, not a building, but the people are to be God's temple in Clanton, standing over against all of the pagan temples in our city. Kevin, we don't have any pagan temples in our city. We don't have any idols, right? Let's dive in. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were scattered in the wilderness." Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. But we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask for his help in understanding it. Our God and our King, we thank you again that you have not left us in the dark, but you've spoken to us in your word. We pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand it, that you would renew and transform our hearts, that we would learn what it means to trust you, to believe in you, and to walk with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul uh, begins dealing with this subject of idolatry. And as I mentioned, right, this was, this was a real issue in Corinth. Corinth was an inescapably religious city. If you were, so I just want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of these early Christians. Let's say that you came to faith. But your family did not. And when it came time to celebrate such and such birthday, they would invite you over probably to one of the temples and say, hey, we're having a party for uh, Tammy over at Zeus's shrine. We want you to join us. Sorry, Tammy, I just threw you under the bus there. Um, right. We want you to come. And you've got to figure out, well, can I go? 
Am I allowed to go to a celebration for a friend? Is that the same as going to a pagan worship service? And then usually what would happen is if uh, somebody brought their sacrifices to the temple, part of it would be burned up on the altar for the God. The other part of it would be eaten by the priest and whatever was left, they would sell in the meat market. And so now it's a question of, well, like, do I need to ask uh, if this meat's tainted or not? Right? Like, Or can I just buy it? And Paul gives some very helpful instruction. He just says, yeah, buy the meat without asking. It's okay. It'll be fine. All right? And if you're invited to dinner at someone's house, don't ask if it was sacrificed to the idol. Just eat it. You're fine. But if someone brings it up, if they say, hey, you know, and, and we're not really sure what exactly the scenario might be, but let's say it's a, it's a non-Christian and they, and they bring it up and say, hey, so we sacrificed that meat to uh, Aphrodite. You're going to eat it, right? Paul says, well, maybe you shouldn't, right? Maybe let this one go for the sake of conscience, right? For their conscience, okay? Uh, so Paul's trying to give some helpful, some helpful direction here. But overall, what he's telling us, overall what we see is that our deepest joy and our greatest purpose are found in Trusting and glorifying God alone. That's, that's really what we're after. So we're going to look at this subject of idolatry, what that means for us, how that applies to us today, and what exactly we, we do with it. How do we flee, how do we, 2018, flee idolatry? So first, what I want us, I want us to see, really, Paul spends most of this chapter talking about rejecting the fleeting joys of an inferior savior. And that's what an idol is. It's an inferior savior. The whole overarching principle for this section, you can find it in verse 12. Paul says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. That's a good old word right there. Take heed, right? The, the, the Greek word is see, look, pay attention. If you think you stand, right? If you're, if you're so confident of your strength, you better watch out lest you fall. If anyone thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. Or as Ice Cube said in the 90s, check yourself before you wreck yourself. There's my pop culture reference for the day. Ice Cube, don't go look it up. All right. First, this question, is idolatry still relevant for us? Is idolatry still relevant for us today? If life in Corinth was inescapably religious, what about our day? Right in Corinth, eating was a religious activity. Politics, civic life were a religious activity. Sports were a religious activity. Not like America at all. Right? I didn't think so. I mean, when was the last time you, you gave up everything to spend Hours with a large group of people in a highly emotional experience, shouting, yelling, feasting. That doesn't ever happen, does it? But seriously, why, why do we struggle with obesity? Why do we struggle with greed? Why do we struggle with lust? It's not because it's not because we worship Zeus and Aphrodite 
or anything else, right? We may not, we may not worship gods by those names, but it is because our hearts were made to find their satisfaction in something else. Our hearts were designed to be satisfied, not in themselves, but in the one who made them. And yet the Bible tells us that we are so, that our natures are so bent, that from the moment we are born, we are trying to find that satisfaction in anything but the one who made our hearts. Right? We are running headlong away from God. And that is idolatry. So it's not just Corinthian life that's inescapably religious. You don't even have to go to church to be a worshiper. You are a worshiper by birth. And you will worship anything and everything that you think will satisfy you. Tim Keller, a pastor, says this in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an incredibly helpful book. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Keller says, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. What are you devoting yourself to? Where does your imagination and your heart run? What is, what are your idols? Maybe your lover. Maybe your body image. Maybe your sense of control. Maybe it's my children when my identity is wrapped up in the success of my children so that when they fail, I am utterly devastated. Maybe it's wrapped up in my job, my identity as a pastor. Will I be a good one? Will I make it? Will it all fall down around my ears? That's idolatry. My comfort in my wealth. Do I have enough? Which, by the way, the answer to that question is always no. When was the last time you met a person who said they had enough? Right? My comfort in my wealth, my security, idolatry. Seeking numbness through vegging out in front of a screen. Idolatry. Each time, right... We are created to be satisfied in God alone. But our nature has been twisted so that we aim to find our satisfaction in anything but God. That's idolatry. Because my team will lose. My children will fall short of my expectations. My bank account will never be full enough. And in that way, an idol's joy is fleeting. It's always dissipating. It's like mist in the morning. It looks really cool, and then it's gone. That's the effect of idolatry. Idolaters, idols are inferior saviors. Even good, 
Even good things can be turned into idols. But they are inferior saviors because the moment that we make them an ultimate thing, they cannot deliver what they promise. They will fail us every time. And to prove this to us, Paul gives us a warning from the past, this Old Testament reference to Israel, and he gives us a warning in his present, what they're dealing with in Corinth. Let's look at the warning from the past. This is what he does at the beginning of chapter 10. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. Our fathers, he's talking about uh, Old Testament Israel. They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. He keeps using this word all to highlight just how privileged these people were. All under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. What's he, what's he talking about? He's referring to the Exodus and he's talking about how God went into Egypt and miraculously and powerfully pulled his people out. Right? So that the, so that these Israelites, all they had to do was watch and walk. And that was it. They did nothing. They just watched God save them and they watched God provide for them. They, they all receive these benefits, right? They all get to walk through the sea. They all get to be guided by this pillar of cloud. Don't we love to say, and, and we actually looked at Exodus in our last series, don't we love to say, man, if God would just do something big and miraculous, then I would really, then I would really believe. You have a whole Old Testament of people who did see God do something big and miraculous. And you know what they did? They worshiped idols, right? The problem is not with God or how big or how little his work is. The problem is right here in the human heart. That regardless of what I see, I'm prone not to believe it. And so Israel, even though they all enjoy God's privileges, yet it says God was not pleased with them. Why? Because they repeatedly rejected they repeatedly grumbled. He even explains there, right? He says these things, verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. The word is a little bit stronger than that, that we might not lust after evil or crave evil as they did. What did they do? They were idolaters. They indulged in sexual immorality, also a part of pagan worship. They put Christ to the test. It's interesting, uh, Paul figures Jesus there in the wilderness. This is pre, this is pre-human, pre-incarnate form of Jesus. Uh, Paul says it's Jesus leading them through the wilderness, right? And yet they put him to the test. They don't trust him. They grumble against him. They see all of these amazing things. They experience manna from heaven. They, they watch, they watch water Shoot out of a rock, y'all, when a guy hit it with a stick. Okay? And then, and their whole families drank, their flocks and their herds drank. And they said, meh. Right? Their hearts ran, their hearts rejected God. And so what does God do? He leaves them in the graveyard of their own desires. Their sun-bleached bones scattered across the wilderness. A whole generation. The total population, roughly around 2 million people left Egypt. 
a whole generation of those people perished in the wilderness because they refused to trust God, even though they saw what he could do. Paul says, that was written for us. Don't be like those people. Don't continually refuse to trust God. So that's the warning from the past. Then Paul gives us a warning in the present. Real quick though, let me say this, just as kind of a a quick application. What that tells us, that story from the Exodus, it tells us this. Enjoying God's privileges does not mean that you are actually enjoying God himself. What I mean by that is you can be a part of the church. You can make use of the means of grace, the preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Right? You can be all up in it and using it regularly and not know God. That's Paul's warning. You can enjoy all the privileges of being around and a part of God's people, but not actually know and enjoy God yourself. Paul says, take heed, be careful. And then he gives us an example from the present, which is kind of confusing to us. It's what he does kind of towards the end of the chapter where he compares eating the Lord's Supper, so eating at the Lord's table and eating at the table of demons, which again sounds a little weird to us in 2018. But here's what Paul is saying, that when we, so once a month we come and we have the Lord's Supper and Paul says what we're doing when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're actually eating at Jesus's table, right? He's invited us to his table. He's the host. And as we share a meal with him, we are actually participating with him, right? It's a, it's a spiritual mystery, but that is a sign of fellowship, right? In the old world, when you ate at someone's table, it was a sign of fellowship, of belonging, right? Even now, when we have people over uh, for a meal, right? It's a sign of friendship and fellowship and belonging, Paul says, so when you eat the Lord's table, that's what you're doing, right? When you eat the bread and drink the cup, it's fellowshipping with the Lord. Guys, the same thing is happening when you go to the idol's temple and you participate in their idol feast. I'm not saying that an idol is anything, but I'm saying behind that idol, there is no real Zeus. But behind what they're calling Zeus is what I'm calling a demon, a supernatural evil being. That is deceiving people and leading people astray. He he tells his brothers and sisters in Corinth, he says, you cannot be at both tables. You cannot share in the table of Jesus and share in the table of a demon. Do not do it. Jesus put it this way. No one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says it's, it's, it's all or nothing. You don't get to have it both ways. That's Paul's point. You cannot eat at Jesus' table. You cannot fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with a demon. So some of you in Corinth who think you're strong, you have a good understanding of things. You got a good, strong head knowledge on you. I'm telling you to be careful. You're playing with fire. Take heed. Lest you fall. What does Paul want us to do? He says, flee, verse 14. Flee from idolatry. That word flee is where we get our word fugitive and refugee, right? Somebody who's running away from imminent danger. That's what Paul, that's what Paul tells us to do. Run away. Run away from the danger. Don't, don't think that your liberty gives you free reign to play with fire. 
You are messing with things that are dangerous to your soul and dangerous to the souls of others. So, from the past and from the present, Paul says, flee from idolatry. There's more to this than you think that there is. So if, that, so if we need to reject the fleeting joys of inferior saviors, if we need to flee from idolatry, run from idolatry, where do we run to? Where do we run to? Paul leads us... Not Paul doesn't just lead us out, and that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. If the gospel says no, there's always a better yes. Paul doesn't just lead, doesn't tell us, just, just run away. But he tells us where to run. Look at verse 13. These words of hope. Chapter 10, verse 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So Paul's imagining that there could be somebody who says, Listen, Paul, I, I know what you said, but you really, you really don't understand. You don't, you don't know my story. You don't know my background. I mean, this, this temptation for me is real. I like, I don't, I don't think there's any way. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say yes. Like, I, I, I don't think there's any way for me to not sin in this. My circumstances, the way my life is, I don't, I don't have a choice. I'm, I'm in it. And Paul says, no, no, no. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, that doesn't mean that my trials and your trials look the same. That doesn't mean that the cross you have to bear is equal in weight to the cross I have to bear or vice versa. But Paul does say, listen, that you're not facing anything that no other person has faced before. You are not special. I'm sorry. You are not special. Your circumstances are not unique. So, no temptation has over." come you that is not common to man. And then he says, so you can do it, buddy. That's not what he says. What does he say? Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. That's, that's what gets us through right there. God is faithful. Trustworthy. True. Sure. Stable. God is is faithful. I lived in Mississippi for several years. And Mississippi, um, well, I'm fairly certain Mississippi has the worst roads in the United States. If you've driven through Mississippi or you've lived in Mississippi, you know what I'm talking about, especially if you lived around Jackson, terrible roads. And part of the reason, there's many, but part of the reason why is called Yazoo Clay. Yazoo clay is the soil content around the Jackson area, and it is very soft and malleable. So when you pave a road over it and then it rains, things begin to get squishy, right? The road actually craters, and you will see asphalt kind of pile up in waves, right? Yazoo clay makes the roads terrible. God is not like Yazoo clay. He is firm. He is solid. He is trustworthy. He will not move. You know who is like Yazoo Clay? Me. And if I had to guess, you. Paul is not saying, you can stand up on your own, just buckle up and do it. He says, no, God is faithful. Are you feeling the squeeze? 
Are you feeling the burden of temptation? God is faithful. God is faithful. What does the faithful God do? Begin at verse 13. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but along with the temptation. So notice it doesn't say God removes the trial necessarily. But right alongside it, right alongside with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to literally bear up under it. Paul envisions somebody saying, Paul, you don't get it. And maybe that's you, right? You don't know my struggles. You don't know how it feels. I can't help myself. Of course you can't. God can. He is the faithful one, not you. If you are a Christian, your relationship with God is not based on your ability or your mental and spiritual toughness. This is not Alabama football. It's not all about your toughness, right? God is the faithful one. We are not. In fact, if you think you're tough, if you think you're untouchable, I'm going to send you back to verse 12. Take heed lest you think, lest you fall, right? God is the faithful one. And He, along with the temptation, provides the way of escape. What does that mean? It means God does not leave us boxed in with no way out. God does not trap us. God does not leave us to fend for ourselves against temptation and sin. In fact, it is only when I try to face temptation and sin by myself that I fall. God is faithful. Let's trust Him. What then does that mean for our living? Paul wraps this whole section up in verse 31. He gives us a few thoughts. So as we're, as we're clinging to the rock, as we cling to the one who is faithful, the one who will not leave us or forsake us, then what sort of guidance do we have for living, right? When we're confronted with those big questions of, oh no, the person just asked, like told me that this idol meat is here. What am I supposed to do with that? Or maybe more real questions for you. What do we do with those? Paul gives us a few things. I'm going to break them into three. First, Verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The first question is, does this bring glory to God? Should I take this job? Should we make this big purchase? Well, the first, really the first question is, is it a sin? No. Okay, let's move to the next question. Will it bring glory to God? Does it bring glory to God? In the little things and in the big things, that's the first thing. May God be glorified, whether you eat or drink. Such an inconsequential thing, right? We, we throw Pop-Tarts in our mouth all the time. Paul says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. How do I make much of God and not of myself? Two, seek the good of your neighbor and not yourself. Paul says, don't think first for yourself, think for your neighbor. That's really been his driving theme in these three chapters underneath this question is, well, think of your neighbor first. Do what is best for them. 
Look how Paul puts it at the end. He says, uh, verse 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. By the way, if you're new to the Bible and you hear that and you go, Oh, I know people like that. People who try to please everybody, they please nobody at all. Listen, Paul was not this weak, um, wishy-washy sort of guy, right? He probably wasn't a whole lot of fun at a party, all right? Uh, he was stern. He could be fierce, as we see in this letter, but he loved Jesus. What Paul means is that there are times when he, he was a Jewish man. Paul would lay aside his Jewish ethnicity and the cultural trappings of that so he could be with Gentiles in a way that didn't offend them. He could eat with Gentiles. He was okay with that. That's called freedom, right? But then when he's going to be with Jews over here, all right, well, I'm not going to act like a Gentile around Jews. That would unnecessarily offend them. I'm going to act like a Jew. I'm okay with that. I've got freedom to do that. Paul says, think about other people first. Think of your neighbor first. Seek the good of your neighbor, right? They would say all things are lawful. Paul would say, yes, but are they helpful? What will be most helpful what will build that person up? You might say, but, but won't I be taken advantage of then? Won't I, be, won't I be a doormat then? Won't people abuse my kindness then? Yeah. And Paul says, it's okay. They did no less to Jesus. It's okay. Don't be so, don't be so worried. You'll be fine. I'm not saying let people abuse you, okay? But I am saying that before we, before we put up the boundaries and the border walls, I don't mean that literally. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm not going there. Um, before, before we start talking about, whoa, 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 I gotta, I gotta make sure I'm safe. Paul says, don't worry about being safe. You'll be fine. Just give. You'll be fine. So, glorify God. Seek the good of your neighbor. And then in 11.1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow those who are following Jesus. Alright? Now, Paul says, imitate me. He's not saying that he's perfect. He's not saying he's got it all together. He's not trying to be the Savior. What he is saying is, listen, I'm doing the best I can to plant my feet behind Jesus. As I do that, I want you to follow me. So a real concrete application would be men. We're, we're inviting Jim Doggett to come down at the end of this month and tell us what it looks like for him to follow Jesus. God has provided us with an example to follow. Let's follow him. Let's listen to what he has to say, right? Follow those who are following Jesus. And if I could take a step back to number two for just a second on this whole idea of using your freedom for the benefit of others. What, what I want you to think about is this. Let's be, be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. Be a stepping stone to help someone to Jesus, not a stumbling block that trips others away from Jesus. Alright? Be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. So those are the three things Paul says, right? As we're clinging to Jesus and believing the gospel, we're glorifying God, we're seeking the good of my neighbor, being a, a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. And I'm just following anybody. I'm following anybody who's following Jesus, right? Imitate those who imitate Christ. John Calvin says this. Being a Christian 
is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It is not apprehended by the understanding and memory alone, as other disciplines are, but it is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds a seat and resting place in the inmost affection of the heart. What about you? What is your heart chasing more than anything? Whatever your mouth may say, what is your life driven to? What is your heart worshiping? That thing is your Savior. And so I want you to hear the warning. If you continue to worship a false god, you will die. You will be disappointed, you will be discouraged, and you will die. But I also want you to hear the welcome. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how prone we are. Just as Paul read for us earlier, how prone we are to to digging cisterns. Nasty, stagnant water pools that have cracks in the bottom of them so they won't even hold the water that they're supposed to. What a picture that is of, of us when we trust anything other than You. That we forsake the living, flowing water of life that comes from You. God, we confess that that is a reality for us. And we turn again and we say, we want more. We want to trust you. We want to live and believe and thrive in you. Lord, I pray for those who maybe for the very first time this morning have heard the offer of the gospel of grace in Jesus that there is life in Him. God, I pray that You would turn their hearts to You. And Lord, for others who've heard it more times than they can count, but still struggle with those old idols that clamor for their heart's affections, would You once again set them free? Set them free from the old man, the old woman, and remind them of the glorious beauty that they have in you. Help us to seek you wholeheartedly, our source of joy and delight, and to glorify you in everything we think, say, or do. We pray it in Jesus' name.